This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Brian Chan is a Canadian icon. Biologist, teacher, guide, and groundbreaker, Brian is the man behind Interior British Columbia's Trophy Stillwater Fishery. Brian has dedicated his entire career to better understanding trout behavior and diet. I've been a huge fan of Brian's for years, so I was ecstatic to have the opportunity to sit down with him to discuss his success with his renowned stocking program, plus his experience with triploids, chronomids, chaobras, and boobies. Brian Chan, you have been on my list of people since (laughs) I started the show. Well, I'm honored to be doing this podcast with you, uh, April. Thank you. Brian, where were you born and raised? So I was born in Vancouver, uh, raised in Vancouver, and uh, did every all my education in Vancouver as well. Where did you go to school? Post-secondary uh, was BCIT, or British Columbia Institute of Technology, for two-year diploma in fish, wildlife, recreational management. And then I, I got a job right after that, and then I ended up coming back to Simon Fraser about two years later to, to get my bachelor's degree. What was the end goal? Did you know you wanted to be a biologist? I knew from a very young age I wanted to work with fish. I was, my dad was an avid salmon fisherman in house in Gulf, lower Gulf of Georgia. I have four sisters, and so we went fishing every weekend. Uh, and it was when the salmon fishing in the Gulf of Georgia was spectacular. And so we we never trolled. We always anchored and fished with live herring or raked herring or raked needlefish, things like that. And so I was brought up, that's the first things I remember was uh, was was fishing with my dad in the boat. But in, in grade four, 
I had to write a little paragraph of what you want to be when you grow up. And my mother still has that little paragraph. And in grade four, I wanted to be an ichthyologist. And that's someone who studies fish. And I was just crazy about fishing ever, ever since day one. Because you guys went fishing. Yes, because of fishing and, uh, yeah. Now, Brian, you're Chinese. Yes. Was your dad Chinese? Yes. Are, are both your parents Chinese? Yes. My dad's grandfather immigrated to Canada. Okay, so your dad was yeah. born here as well. Yeah, and so was my grandfather. Ooh. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's like fourth generation. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, so then you... You went to school. Now, were you doing a lot of still water fishing at that time? No, I, it was all salmon fishing. And then I, it's crazy, but I, I we, we, we saw an ad in the Vancouver Sun that the Vancouver Angling Club was offering free fly casting lessons at Lost Lagoon. And my dad took me down there and I, I was just fascinated with casting. And then my dad used to... Uh, subscribed to Outdoor Life magazine. So I would read it. And I started reading these articles about fly fishing and fly tying. So my dad was a machinist welder, and he made me a fly tying vise, uh, a very crude one. And I started tying flies out of my dad used to smoke a pipe, and I'd use pipe cleaners right. for the body. And then I had some polar bear. And we would be out salmon fishing, anchored and mooching, and I was casting off the bow of the boat and catching grills, so juvenile two-year-old coho, and you get the odd jack spring as well. And it was just crazy. I just fell in love with it. I, I can vividly remember days when we would have double or triple headers on the rods in the back, and my dad yelling at me to come back and get my rod. And I'm going, no, I'm having fun up front. You you land them. And he says, well, I can't land all three of them by myself. <laughs> when did, well, what about bugs? When did, when did the fascination with bugs come into play? My neighbor's son, I, we used to hang out together, and uh, we used to... F- you know, fish off the wharves at Horseshoe Bay and at Stanley Park Seawall and that. And they took me to Hefley Lake one year, just north of Kamloops, when we were quite young, for a week. That's when I saw bugs in lakes, and I got really interested in them. And, um, yeah, it just, my interest in freshwaters, just by by late elementary school age, I was just fascinated with bug life in lakes and that. And, uh I, I just knew that was, you know, I wanted to do something uh, for a career, hopefully working with fish in fresh water. What happened after you graduated college? Actually, when I just finished BCIT, uh, I, I got a job with DFO, with Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and I lived in uh, Bella Coola for almost two years doing uh, Chinook Smold Enumeration, doing dead pitches for Sockeye, Okino Lake. I'm running Chinook fences in in the Smith Inlet. So I had a really good taste of fishing for uh, Sea Run Cutthroat and Steelhead and Chinooks in the Adnarco. And then um, I saw an ad in the paper that uh, province in in 1974 was advertising for fisheries tax, uh, like five positions throughout the province. So I applied and I got an interview. And I did the interview 
for that job in a pay in a phone booth in Bella Coola. I can vividly remember it was pouring out, and I'm in this phone booth doing the interview over the phone because I wouldn't, I you know they wouldn't pay my airfare to get down to Victoria, and it was just took me two and two and a half days to get there. So they did it over the phone, and then I got a letter about a month later saying you know I I won the competition and uh, I, I one of five positions and I had my choice of where I wanted to go, and I chose Kamloops. Why? And, uh, because I, I, I knew there was lots of lakes here, and uh, it, it would be perfect. It would be, and it wasn't too far from Vancouver and the, my, and the family and that. So uh, that's how my career in Kamloops started. And I worked for about two years, and then I took a leave of absence and went back to Simon Fraser and finished my degree, and then came back and. Uh, Basically, you know, I spent the, almost my entire working career as a fisheries biologist in Kamloops. Except for my last five years prior to retirement, I was seconded to the uh, newly formed Freshwater Fisheries Society of BC, who wanted me to head up their marketing and promotion of freshwater fishing. And uh, it was a wonderful job. And uh, we developed lots of programs uh, dealing with teaching kids to fish and uh, just getting more people fishing because the funding model had changed with when you bought your freshwater license. Now it was going directly to the Freshwater Fish Society to operate the fish hatchery program for the province. So that was a great way to end a, a wonderful career working with fish and uh, managing lakes, managing fisheries and watching fisheries develop, and, and then watching anglers reap the rewards. So it was pretty exciting. Who was the guy in the Kamloops region before you came on board? The, the biologist? Yeah. The- yeah, so it, just before I came on board, it, it was basically two people working in Kamloops and fisheries, and, and it was John Cartwright who hired me and was my mentor for for work and uh, was a wonderful man actually moving to Kamloops at such a young age I almost became part of his family with his two boys and we did a lot of fishing and hunting together and skiing and uh, I ate a lot of meals at his at the Cartwright household but had anybody really made a name for themselves in that region no because uh, I basically was the first younger person to come on board to uh, start managing lakes more intensely. So when I moved to Kamloops permanently in 1974, uh, we had, I don't even think we had four or five quality managed waters. It was all general limit, whether it was eight fish a day or six fish a day. And uh, within about 10 years of me arriving in Kamloops, we we had over a hundred lakes that are managed for quality fishing. So we had the opportunity now that we had a biologist in the field to start offering a diversity of fishing experiences for people. So family lakes to the other end of the spectrum, quality trophy, blue ribbon waters as well. So it was a great mix. Because now Kamloops is famous for being the yeah. trout mecca. Yeah. But it wasn't back then. No, it, it wasn't. But, you know, the, the the recognition of the quality of fishing we have in the Camelot area is is directly related to the to the growing population of the lower mainland and uh the valley, the Fraser Valley because lots of anglers and uh 
the ability to come up to Kamloops for the weekend. And then things really changed in Kamloops when the Kokaala Highway was built. Right. Because now it made Kamloops a day trip for people living in Chilliwack, Abbotsford. And there's a large population of recreational anglers and hunters that live in the valley. Yeah, it was two hours and 20 minutes on the GPS from Chilliwack. Yeah. So that's actually not that bad. Yeah, and that's right to Kamloops. That's downtown Kamloops. So you can imagine if you're fishing the Merritt area, it's less than two hours. And people, English, don't think any thing of that anymore and they spend that much time commuting every day to work that's right that's so, right well so. talk to me about triploids were was there still a triploid program in place no then? the no. Tri- triploid program actually got started in 1996 when the decision to continue stocking brook trout in the province was only going to be allowed if they were non-reproductive because we found out that brook trout were escaping from lakes and they were interbreeding with bull trout, which were species of concern. And when the two interbreed, the offspring were sterile. So we were impacting wild populations of bull trout. So in order to continue a a brook trout stocking program, we had to come up with a non-reproductive product. And that started the whole trip loading process of development in BC. And that went from brook trout to various strains of rainbow trout to kokanee. Actually, non-reproductive strains of, of rainbow trout that we stock in quality managed lakes today are the reason why you're seeing pictures on social media of double-digit and well into double-digit fish. It's like because they're, pounds. Yeah, they're probably all-female triploid panask or blackwater. Can you please trout. explain the triploid to people listening who have never heard of a triploid? Yeah. So a triploided fish basically is a non-reproductive fish. So that fish is not going to reproduce. It's going to expend all its energy into growth. And they'll live longer as well. So... We've taken just triploiding males and females so that you've got triploided males and you've got triploided females. We've taken it one step further and we have all-female triploids so we don't have any males. Because when you triploid a male trout, they still develop sexual maturation traits so they develop milt and they... uh, they get a kipe and they get the red stripe, but they can express the milt. And uh, that de- secondary sexual development reduces their capacity to grow. And uh, there's also mortality associated with it. So in many of our best trout lakes in the province, they're landlocked. So there's no natural recruitment, no spawning. So if the perfect product is just triploided females, which don't develop eggs, don't color up, and they just grow and grow and grow and then die of old age. (laughs) How old do they usually live till? So normally a diploid rainbow trout typically lives up to five or six years of age if they're lucky and survives spawning because trout can repeat spawn. Diploid. Diploid means reproductive. So a trout that spawns, if they can successfully spawn and then come back to the lake, they could potentially live five, maybe six years of age. But being triploided, they can live nine years. So they could live for, if they're stocked as one-year-old fish, they could live for eight years in a lake and just 
get quite large. Yeah. Now, why would you guys want them to not be able to reproduce? Because if you have reproductive fish in a landlocked lake, the males and females become egg or milt bound because they can't express their milt or eggs. They can't spawn. And there's high mortality associated with becoming egg bound. So you've probably caught an egg bound trout in your fishing in BC where you get this beautiful looking fish and it's spewing yellowish clear eggs. And they're, they're called atretic eggs. They're eggs from that spring that have died that she could not express. Yeah. And there's, there's mortality associated with that. But don't you want them to reproduce so that you have more, a, a higher population and you don't have to stock? No, because in order to know exactly the or to achieve the size range of fish in a lake that you're managing, you need to know how many fish are in that lake. Once you introduce natural recruitment, it's an unknown factor of how much additional fry are coming to the lake. And there's only X amount of food in a lake to grow either lots of little fish or fewer big fish. Right. So you need to know what's happening. You need to know numbers. And that's why they say to take fish out of certain lakes because it just encourages yep. the growth. Yeah. That sounds very economical then. Was this based on industry and money? Yes. Right. Yep. So what was the thought process behind that? Was that just to bring in money for licenses? Um, the whole trip loading process? No, it was, it was to produce a quality product. For the angler, uh, to, like so, tourism dollars as well, or, or truly just for the angler, just just for just for anglers, but whether they're resident or um, visiting anglers, our provincial fish culture program in British Columbia is really the envy of much of North America because the majority of our stocks of rainbow we use are the progeny are taken from wild parents. So we're not having these massive concrete tanks of brood fish that we take eggs from every year. So the panace strain, which you're quite familiar with, which is our beautiful rainbow trout and our most prized every year, fish culturalists from the Freshwater Society of BC go into Panas Creek, which is about a two-hour drive from here, and they take eggs from fish that have never been stocked in that lake. So they're truly a wild strain of rainbow trout. And that's how we keep such a, a vigorous strain of fish in these lakes that fight hard, pull, jump, and are a very pretty fish to look at. So what have we got? We've got the Panask, the Blackwaters. And, What's the other one? And, we, and we've got a, we're now just, we're now re, uh, releasing a carp-like strain with carp like are, are from Prince George. And we've just started releasing a horsefly river strain into some select small productive lakes in the caribou. And then we do have a domesticated or a cultured strain of fish, and they're called Fraser Valley. Oh. And they're, they were developed to stock into urban fisheries as catchables uh, because they're fast-growing and they're very susceptible to angling. Also, the province has also been stocking some of those Fraser Valley catchables into lakes that winter kill in the interior. So if they're, we have a, a productive lake in the interior that winter kills, and we stock a six to eight inch subcatchable Fraser Valley rainbow into it in May, by fall, 
that fish is over three pounds. And if it survives the winter, they're going to be six, seven pounds the next year. I'm just surprised the next year they'll be in their teens. So a lot of anglers have gotten to liking these Fraser Valleys, but uh, they are really were developed for urban fisheries in areas like southern uh, Vancouver Island and uh, the lower mainland. Now, when you say developed, it's it's really funny, just so that you know. When I was 21, I, I mean, you still are the man, but I remember learning about you when I was 21, and you were like God in our world. <laughs> and there was this you know rumor that Brian Chan had lakes under, and actually, I don't think the rumors, I think this is true. Brian Chan had lakes under lock and key. And, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> and, oh, you didn't? I thought there was one. I remember driving by one. It was in like a mine area. Yeah. And it had a big lock and key, and it was used for experiments to stock yeah. triploids. Is that such a thing? Do you have these lock and no, key? No. The province had a, a working relationship with Highland Valley Copper, and they still that's right, do. That's where it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they, they actually, I found the lake. It's called Nod Lake. That's right. And, and yeah, we, yeah. We, uh, we approached the mine and said, listen, we're, we're, we always are looking for lakes that we can use to test stocks. Because if we take a public lake, then we have to close it because we don't want all the fish being caught. So we, we developed a relationship with the mine and started stocking Nod Lake with, that's the lake we stocked or tested our triploid fish in. So we used to call it Lake X. Just just like Mercury Marine at Lake X for testing the outboards. We had <laughs> Nod. And uh, yeah, we, we, we grew some truly enormous Panaskan blackwater strains of fish in that lake. And it was on private property, so it wasn't open to the public. It was it was those testing grounds, but they they were substantial in size. How big did they get? Oh, um, definitely into the mid to high teens. Brian, I wish that you could have been a fly on the wall to hear all the stories and all <laughs> of the rumors and all of the discussion we had talking about Brian Chan's. It was not like, that's right. I've totally, for, I, I mean, it's all flooding back to me now, but <laughs> God, we were just so intrigued. But yourself, you, you've you had the enjoyment of fishing Forest Lake, yeah. north of Williams Lake, and that's like one of the most productive still waters in British Columbia. And you've caught some very large fish out of that lake. Oh, yeah. So that was, that was your Noat Lake. <laughs> yeah, well, and there are a lot of those here. Yeah. I mean, we stumbled across half a dozen of those lakes with 15-pound fish in them. Yeah. They're incredible. Yeah, yeah. and we're seeing even today now, like this year has been a phenomenal year for large fish being caught out of a lot of lakes not only in the Caribou region, but also in the Kamloops region. And it's just, we're going, lakes go through cycles. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're on a high cycle for a number of lakes. And they, there's peaks and valleys. And um, anglers that are in the know, they know, they follow lakes. And they know when they're cycling in, into a good number of years. And um, yeah, you know, they, they anglers study the stocking records and... Uh, uh, look at uh, reports to find out if lakes have winter killed or not, and then look forward three and four years ahead. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, it's it's good, a lot of good information out there for the anglers to help them decide on uh, where they want to fish. And and there's no doubt that uh, the interest in fishing still waters is on a significant ramp up, and a lot of that. Is being, I contribute to the 
distinct issues that we're having in in anadromous stocks. And the lack of in-river recreational fisheries, plus now in the ocean, is, is these anglers want to go fishing. And if they can't fish the lower Fraser or potentially parts of the Skeena system, then you've, you're, they're turning to lakes. And, and, and we're, I think we're lucky that we have 20,000 lakes in British Columbia because they're becoming more and more important for reasons, unfortunately, uh, that are sometimes beyond our control. Did you ever feel like a bit of a mad scientist because you had free reign? I just, I think about a lot of the biologists who really have their hands tied with anadromous fish, you know, hatcheries and steelhead. There's always politics and drama, but in the lakes, did you ever kind of feel like the sky was the limit? It was really exciting. Well, 20 years ago, yes, because 20 years ago, we didn't have the awareness of biodiversity issues, which is right. I mean, we, we don't want to be stalking a, f- a lake that could potentially wipe out because of an introduction of fish, um, amphibians or reptiles, or even insect or zooplankton species that might be unique to that particular water body. But back 25, 30 years ago, I, I could be in a helicopter looking down at a lake and that I'd never been on. And I could tell just by looking at it that it's got enough depth, it's got enough shoal area, we should stock it. So we'd just take the coordinates and then, you know, the next year we could, we'd, we'd stock it. But uh, that's not happening anymore for good reason. How did you stock them? Did you did you just fly over and dump them in or did you physically walk in and put them no, in? No, we, we, depending on the access, they would be... Uh, driven in by truck, uh, but oftentimes if they were remote lakes, they would uh, be stocked by a fixed-wing plane that we'd dump them out. Or now, for the, probably the past 15 years, it's all those difficult access lakes are stocked by helicopter. So yeah. some of these lakes could be stocked, but there's almost no way to get into them. Unless you're going to, by foot. Yeah. yeah. By walking, yeah. Now, did you, was it your job to go in and monitor all of these lakes? Uh, yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time in, in, in the bush. Because <laughs> you're still in ex- exceptional shape. How old are you now? I'm 66. Yeah, I mean, you look like you're, you, honestly, I met you almost 20 years ago. You look the, <laughs> you look the same. So is that what you would do? Would you go in and walk and... Yeah, we, we did a lot of, I did a lot of inventory of remote lakes in anticipation of logging development or highway access. For instance, when... Highway 24 from Little Fort to 100 Mile was relocated up onto the plateau. It cut a swath through a previously quite wilderness area. And so we spent three summers hiking to all the lakes or getting in by rough four-wheel drive roads and inventorying inventorying them so we knew what what needed to be protected when this swath went through and a new and a paved highway went by them so yeah a lot of our a lot of our remote wilderness uh, work was was done in response to potential or coming harvest timber harvest mines or uh, road highways so really you had a, a dream job because a lot of people who want to get into biology they think that they're going to have a job like yours in the field but yeah. they're actually stuck in the office yeah were you just really lucky or, or was it a different time? Is, is that what biologists did back then? That's what biologists did back then. We had far 
far less political issues to deal with, far less bureaucracy. So I, I look at the biologists that have, have taken my position. You know, they're they're losing their hair because early, because it's not the same job anymore. And uh, you know, I've certainly been very fortunate to see the development of some wonderful fisheries, having a very free reign on what we did and how we did it. And uh, it's just not like that anymore, uh, uh, provincially, and certainly it's not that way federally. Yeah, no kidding. Um, Okay, so then after I learned about you and lake fishing, I got the ghillie, which by the way is no longer in print. Yeah. I I can't find it anywhere. I have a copy, but I mean, if, if... if people wanted to buy it, could they buy it? Did it end up going uh, back to print? Uh, uh, it was my understanding that it's been reprinted again. Oh, good. So I think it is available again. It changed my whole yeah. fishing life. You guys went through, because who else was on there? There was you, Ehor. Yeah, uh, uh, well, Alf Davey was yeah. the editor. Uh, Jim Crawford, Doug Porter. I think Denise Maxwell wrote in it. Um, Ehor wrote Boynowski. Yeah, there was a... A lot of, I think Jim Jim Kilburn wrote in it, a lot of ardent anglers uh, contributed to that book uh, with with all the profits going back to the BC Federation of Fly Fishers for uh, for projects, for it, enhancement projects. It's been a long time since I've read it, admittedly, but I remember reading it and learning about scuds. And you guys went through every single... Yep insect yep. in the lakes. You guys spoke about pH levels. You guys spoke about things that blew my mind. <laughs> Fly fishing tactics. Whose idea was that book? It was Alf Davey, that, uh, his idea to, to get all these writers together and, um, and, and to put the book together. And it, you know, prior to that, we just had, we had Jack Shaw's two books and Jack was my mentor. I mean, mm. when I moved to Kamloops, I met Jack and, uh, he took me under his wing. He he taught me so much. And then I was able to contribute back to him from the biological side. And together we um, we were able to, to come up with some innovative fly patterns for sure and uh, different ways to fish. But Jack had a significant influence on my, uh, my learning curve when I moved to Kamloops. There's no question about that. Who really started the chronomid trend out here? No, Jack did. Did he? Yeah, Jack started it. He knew what chronomids were, and he was tying them. But when he was fishing chronomids and other anglers like Mo Bradley and then a number of other old-timer Kamloops uh, fly anglers were fishing them, we were. this was back in the early 70s to mid-70s, and we didn't have strike indicators back then. So what, when I learned how to fish chronomids, it was with sinking lines with intermediate or type two or type three sinking lines. And we would anchor and cast out and do a slow hand twist retrieve. And you know what the take is like when they take it on the move. It wasn't until the early 1980s that indicators came on the scene. And prior to that, it was just floating line nymphing long leaders. Was there any hostility with the dry fly purists? That you guys are fishing down deep with these little chronomids? Well, well so certainly um, s- some of the old-time anglers who were schooled on the English way to fish, it was dry line, dry fly, or the highway where there's no other <laughs> But we all know now that 
plus percent of the time a trout's eating, it's safer to eat down on the bottom than it is up at the top. What percent of a trout's diet is made up of chronomids? Uh, well, certainly in, during the spring months, it's, it's probably in excess of 80%. But if you average it over the year, uh, chronomids, be it chronomid larvae or pupae, you know, they're probably uh, reaching um, 60, 65% of their average annual diet is comprised of chronomids. They must taste good. Right, well, they might, or just abundance, right? What does it look like when they're feeding down there? Are they just like a whale with their mouth open or are they chomping and individually picking up chronomids? Well, you just imagine when there's an actual chronomid emergence, all these chronomid pupa have broken out of their larval shocks and they're idling head up, tail down at the bottom of the lake. And then there's a mass migration to the surface of the lake. So we're talking hundreds of thousands of them slowly wiggling to the surface. And a trout just has to open its mouth and close it and filter them through their, their gill filaments down the hatch. So it would not be uncommon if you did a gut analysis, stomach analysis of a trout that's been feeding on chronomids for, say, three hours in the morning to count several thousand, if not more, chronomid pupa in its stomach. Uh, we, we, we have to remember as anglers that fish are going to expend the least amount of energy for the great, greatest return of food. And there is no easier food except for zooplankton for trout to eat than chronomid pupa because they're meaty. They can be large, they can be bomber-sized, and they're help. they can't swim away, they can't escape. They're defenseless. They just inhale them, yeah, and, that, and that's, um, that's why they like to eat so much, so many of them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why do you think so many of us as kids grew up thinking we needed a worm and a spinner? Chronomid <laughs> fishing was mind-blowing back then. Yeah. Well, the first trout I ever caught, I was seven years old, and my dad took my fishing buddy and myself to Deer Lake in Burnaby. Right. And it was a November morning, pouring rain, and I had a spinning rod, a red and white float, and we hung a dewworm under that float. And I caught this, it happened to be a hatchery called domesticated trout that wouldn't give the hatchery any more eggs, so they would put them in Deer Lake. Uh -huh. And I caught one of those things, and it was about 18 inches long. And it was the most exciting thing I've ever caught, and I've caught thousands of salmon before that, but this was just unbelievable, and it was just pouring down rain, and my dad was in the 
in the car reading popular science and I bring back this trout and he says, I said, Dad, we got to bring it home and Mom's got to cook it. And he says, you know, I don't know what it's going to taste like and I don't care. So he brought it home, we cooked it. And it was terrible. You couldn't eat it. And my mom said, don't ever bring one of those things home oh, again. No. <laughs> but you would think that we would stop thinking of fishing with worms and spinners and we would as kids be raised to thinking that fish don't take worms they take chronomids because it sounds like they eat chronomids more than they eat worms yeah but uh so many of us were brought up with a bobber and a worm and watching that bobber go down is no different than watching a chronomid on a bobber watching an indicator down it's like a mini worm with a with a mini worm <laughs> yeah right i just wrote an article about chronomid fishing and yes and one of the things that blows my mind is that people who spin fish don't fish with chronomids. Is that starting to pick up around here now? People with spinning rods fishing chronomids? It's a great way to learn how to catch fish. One of the chronomid techniques that is, that is becoming more and more popular is deep lining. Mm -hmm. So deep lining meaning there's chronomids hatching in 40, 50, 60, 70, 90 feet of water. And you're much more effective with a spinning rod and a slip float with monofilament going straight down than you are with a full sinking line down yeah. there. Is that picking and, up now? Yeah, and that's you see more and more anglers doing that. And it's, it's a great way to get people hooked on catching fish on a fly. And uh, it, it just, just carries them forward into the next step of learning how to actually fly fish. That's right. Yeah. So let's go back to your career with this fly fishing, because not only were you busy being the man and biologist in this region, but you were also, you were doing television and yeah. you were, you became a certified casting instructor yeah. and teaching and you had your you, making materials. I mean, Brian, you were, you are still on fire. Like, how did you have time for that stuff? <laughs> well, I can tell you why I got into doing stuff like teaching and that was because in about 1980, a friend and I went to Christmas Island. And wow. I was very young in the, very early in the fishery. Big time. And I came back from that trip and I said to my wife, I, I got to go again. And she said to me, you can go as often as you want, but it's not coming out of general revenue. So you have to think about another source of income. So that's when I said to myself, well, <laughs> I, I'm going to start writing or doing talks and things like that. And that's where I started to develop a secondary career where I could earn a bit of money to go on destination yes. trips. And uh, it was that one trip to Christmas Island. That's, that's it. I was hooked on, uh, on tropical flats fishing. It was just so wonderful. And so I, I was regularly, even before that, going and doing talks to clubs in the States. And I, I would go to and talk to these clubs and talk about fisheries management. And they're going, well, we love that, Brian, but we want to talk about fishing techniques. And I said, oh, well, I can do that. And uh, so I started doing that. That's how it started. What, what about all the, the fly tying materials? And what is the company that you and Phil started? So Phil and I, uh, a number of years ago, was we... we, we developed a line of fly tying products called Stillwater Solutions. And we worked with Superfly at the time. And we wanted to develop a line of quality materials that had great applicability for, for tying flies for stillwater fishing. And then it spilled over into other river flies as well. And we had a good run of that for a number of years. And uh, 
And unfortunately, we, we had some issues with quality control. And uh, so we ended up uh, ending that program. But now, you know, uh, right now, Phil and I, we still continue to develop fly patterns. And and we have a little online store that uh, we sell fly patterns that we've developed. You know, it, it, it provides a bit of funny money for going on hunting trips or fishing trips, things like that. So What's the website? It's, uh, it's Stillwater Fly Fishing Store. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, what, how did Phil come into the mix? You know, I met Phil back uh, probably in the early 90s when I was, I, I was asked to go on the Canadian World Fly Fishing Championship team to Norway uh, to compete. And uh, I knew Phil was a fly tire and I needed a bunch of flies tied because I, I didn't have the time. And so that's how we met was over that. And then I would see Phil at, uh, he was still living in BC, and I would see Phil at um, at conclaves and fish outs, things like that. And we, and we got to know each other. He was pretty in, in, into lake fishing as well. And uh, our friendship developed from there. And, uh, you know, not only do we have that Stillwater store that we operate, we developed an app, Stillwater Fly Fishing app, that we're currently continuing to work on. And well, we have... 150, 160 video clips on there that's, uh, that are downloadable. And uh, we've we've meddled in a few little projects together and uh, we get together each year and uh, shoot tips for the apps and, and also, uh, you know, spend some time on the water fishing. What's the app called so people can find it? It's, it? it's called Stillwater Fly Fishing App and, oh. and it's, it's available on Google Play or iTunes. And uh, it's subscription-based, but it's also you can download it and there's... Uh, at least a third of the content is free. And then uh, the uh, paid content gets refreshed every uh, month. We put new stuff up there. So we have five chapters that uh, everything from uh, techniques and tactics to fly tying videos, equipment, uh, to entomology. So it, it's it's really a, a pretty good source for still water information on how to fish still waters. For people listening who have never fished still water before, or they've never gone chronometing, what's the first step? If you had to walk a beginner through start to finish, what would it look like? Well, hopefully we, we would have them on the water when there's chronomets coming off. And then... Um, and what time of year is that? I'm, I'm going to pretend like I don't know anything about it. Yeah. So we would, we would get set up with uh, floating lines, strike indicators, a swivel... 20, 24 inches above the fly. Oh, so you're a swivel guy. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk about that after. Sorry, continue. Yeah. And uh, I would explain the life cycle to, to, to the person to, so that they understand why we're suspending that pupa pattern so close to the bottom. Why are we doing that? Because chronomets stage at the bottom. And they may stay, you may, you can have phenomenal chronomet fishing and never see one hatch. That's because the pupa will stage for days and days because they're not quite fully developed to make that swim up. And the other thing you have to remember is that the trout are safer from predators if they eat down at the bottom than higher in the water column. And that's why we want to be typically within a foot or foot and a half of the bottom of the lake. So then once the, once the individual understands that, then we have to explain the, the little bobber that's out there, the little <laughs> indicator, and that when it moves and it doesn't have to 
dunk, but just quivers or shakes, you have to lift and strip and set the hook. And there's just something about watching a strike indicator that a bobber that just fascinates people. I have guests that I take fishing each year that have fished everywhere in the world that's ever been on my bucket list, and they do it regularly. And they come back to Kamloops every year because they loved to see the bobber drop. Really? <laughs> they like this. And this is after they've just caught back from the Seychelles or Kamchatka or the Kola Peninsula. <laughs> like, <laughs> now, are you guiding? No, I took this year off from but, guiding. But you have been yeah, guiding? I've been guiding for the last 10 years. Were you doing that and doing your biology work? I uh, know. As soon as I retired from the Freshwater Society, I, I started doing some guiding trips. Can I get kind of dorky with you here? Sure. I've got questions about midge flies. How many species of midge fly are there? There's approximately 2,500 species of midges or chronomids in North America. So what first happens is after all these midges hatch, the females gather in swarms, big clouds. They actually look like round balls. And they're flying up and then they flutter down and they're doing this circular motion and they're waiting for a male to fly into the swarm. They're, and the females are rele- releasing pheromes. Oh. And the males pick up the scent of the pherome, fly into the swarm, and mating occurs. And then those females fly back to the lake to lay their eggs that evening when the water's calm or early in the morning when the water's calm. And they skim across the surface of the lake or pond or river and dip the tip of their abdomen in the surface film and release their eggs. And the eggs sink to the bottom, be it in two feet, 20 feet, 200 feet. And those eggs are demersal. They sink to the bottom and eventually settle in the bottom substrate and hatch into a microscopic larval stage who develops a tube that they live in at the bottom of the lake but how long do they live down there? Because I thought you, it was like a year. Yeah, it's a year, one year, typically a one-year life cycle. It is? Yeah. Wow, okay, sorry. So they, they make like a tube? Yeah. They live in a little tube at the bottom of the lake. They stick their head out, and now they're called larvae, right? That's the midge larvae. And the larvae feed on detritus, decomposing plant vegetation. Oh. And they can live in almost anoxic water conditions, so almost no oxygen. And so that's why they can live in such extreme depths. When the larvae is fully matured, it seals itself inside that little tube and transforms from a segmented little round worm into the midge pupa. The midge pupa becomes fully developed, breaks out of that old larval shock, and migrates rises, it traps gas under its thorax and abdomen, which helps it float to the surface of the lake. So that's why we call that fly the chromie. It's because it's got that gas trapped under its cuticle or skin, and that's what helps it get to the surface of the lake. Okay, so the bloodworm is Is, the larval stage. What about glassworms? So glassworms are the larval stage of chaobrus the Chaobrus fly, which is a member of the family Chronomidae. But they're different. The larvae 
of that Chiabras are free swimming and they're predaceous. They eat meat and they eat, al- they eat algae and that, but they'll also eat zooplankton. They're glass, that's, they're clear, that's what we call them, glass worms. And they rise and fall up and down in the water column um, because they're photosensitive. So they like to be down during the day, but at night they come up and they follow the zooplankton because that's what zooplankton do. They go up and down. And so when when trout, unfortunately, feed on the Chiabras larvae, it's very difficult to imitate them because they're clear. But the Chiabras lar- larvae eventually pupates into a a very dull green or brown pupa oh. that rises to the surface of the lake just like the like the midge does and hatches. What does the adult look like? The adult looks like a chronomid, except their antenna are very, very small. Versus the chronomid or midge adult, they have feathery or plumose antenna. The uh, Chiabras adult has very, very fine antenna, and that's how you can tell the difference. Interesting. So what about in the U.S. or in trout streams when they fish the San Juan worm? Is that just a chronomid larva? No, that's an aquatic earthworm. Oh, it is. So that's it's different. What, that's what they're imitating. Because aquatic earthworms get quite large. Yeah. And some of those San Juan worms, well, now they're using r- rubber to tie them on. They get quite large. Okay, so when they're doing the San Juan shuffle, they're not just dislodging... Larva, it's actually a worm. They're, they're, out, they're dislodging anything that's living in that substrate that, or under those rocks or under the substrate that they're shuffling. So interesting. Do you think it's important to tie gills into your chronomids, or do you think they even care? Uh, well, I, I, when I was taught to tie them, it was always with gills. I, I still put gills on my chronomids if they're bigger, but... Quite often, we're just tying, the you know, a bead head and no gills. And with the materials that we have today to tie chronomid pupa or midge pupil patterns, we can get so realistic that I don't know if those children are even thinking about looking at gills. They see this glistening thing down there with a the segmentation and they go, we need it. Come to think of it, I had spent a lot of time tying a woven chronomid. So it was like, it would take forever to tie. And I would tie in flat braid along each side. So it would give, you know how chronomids aren't really round. They're more like this. The real chronomids are are, are more oval in shape. Yeah. So I tied them. I tied mine to look oval. Yeah. Yeah, And then I I wove them so that the segments were perfect. There was no, (laughs) it took forever, but they still took the the regular the tied ones, ones yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about swivels. Yeah. Why are you a swivel guy? Well, for a couple of reasons, um, and you may laugh, but no, no, I'm, the, the first is reason is um, British Columbia is a one fly mm-hmm. regulation, whereas but two rods if you're alone in a boat, right? But having the ability to fish two flies would be huge, uh, which is, you're available, you're allowed to do that in every other jurisdiction in North America except BC, regardless, so that's, that's the law. So the swivel does a couple things. The first thing is it gets you down quicker, down to the bottom, and, uh, and it eliminates 
a lot of unnecessary movement when there's wave action. So it's like kind of like a shock absorber. But secondarily, what we've learned from swivels is that by changing the color of swivel you use, you get swivel bites. So they just think if you're if you're using a gunmetal gray swivel and you you get three bites, the indicator goes down three times and you never hook up. But on the fourth time it goes down, you hook a fish and it's foul hooked. It's, it's in the belly. Well, he didn't eat your cronid. He ate the swivel. And the swivel is the right color of what you should be using. Oh. So we use silver swivels, light gray, dark gray, black. And uh, we even paint them. As an experiment. Yeah, it's experimenting. That's... <laughs> So do you think we should be able to fish two hooks? I mean, it's, uh, if, if it's a, you know, we manage lakes for whether it's harvest or non-harvest. And if you, uh, we're using two flies, you, that the intent is never to catch two fish. It's just, it's just to find out what they're, what they're feeding on. And it would be wonderful to have, uh, the ability to use uh, two flies, but I'm I'm fine not having having not. So we're so used to just fishing one fly, yeah. and I you know I, I fish with a lot of guests that fish two flies all the time, and once they see how many fish you can catch with one fly, they often don't use two flies because you can get in a lot of tangles when you use two and three flies, and they can get real dangerous when you've got a fish in the net and you've got one or two other flies swinging around Yeah, there. no kidding. Do you have one insect in particular that you prefer to fish? No, I, I, it's, it's, it would be chronomids or midges, absolutely. Yeah. How come we don't fish the adults? That we do when we're fishing lakes that we know the fish like to eat the adults. But unlike rivers and many other uh, lakes south of the border, our lakes are so productive and there's so much food in them that the trout don't have to come up to the surface to eat where that exposes them to ospreys and loons and other predators because it's always about how easy it is to get their food and where they can eat it in the safest environment. Right. And so where we do get adult midge feeding or cronwood fishing are on lakes where we have these monstrous chronomids come off. We call them bombers. Yeah. That they're well over an inch <laughs> yeah. in length. And some lakes, the trout do go on them when they're on the, when their females are laying eggs. Oh, they do? Yeah, they will chase them because it's a worthwhile food item. It's big enough that they will chase them. But we, we just don't get a lot of dry fly chronomid fishing. That's left up to uh, mayflies and uh, caddisflies. What was your biggest, oh my goodness, moment in your life as an angler? And the one thing we have to remember about, just in the general Kamloops area, uh, where we have a fair bit of fishing pressure, is that fish can develop a learned response to being caught. Oh, okay. And so you catch those big guys once in the spring, they see a lot of flies and they avoid them and you may, they may not want to bite again until late in the fall. And, and that's sick, strictly a function of being caught and released. And uh, we're finding also that some, that some strains of fish, of salmonids, trout, are much more gullible 
than others. And perhaps the most gullible strain or, or, or trout strain are, are West Slope cutthroat. They, in the Yellowstone River, there's been studies done that they, they get caught an average of nine times a season. And we know when you go and fish the, 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 the West Slope cutthroat streams and these Kootenays that it's pretty rare to catch a bunch of fish in a day that have not had at least one hook scar or a, a pre-max missing, you know. And uh, so what we're seeing in a lot of lakes that get a lot of pressure is so those fish are, they're, they're wising up to being caught. And uh, and it just means your patterns have to get, you have to up the level of uh, sophistication sometimes on on patterns or be be willing to think outside the box and try different tactics that uh, we, we probably never used to fish. And we learn so much about fishing still waters nowadays from the UK. Right. Where that is the pioneer, that's the birthplace of fishing still waters is, is the United Kingdom. Buzzers. Where they call them buzzers, but just fishing lakes in general. Yeah. And tactics and how, how to approach lakes. And, you know, I, I've learned a lot from reading British magazines and, and and watching British um, videos on uh, the way they fish over there, and just for instance, the use of drogues where you're drifting. It's a sea anchor that's that controls your drift, and you're constantly casting and retrieving, so you don't anchor. It's you're covering fresh water the whole drift, and 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 some of the some of the patterns, uh, techniques of fishing, blobs and boobies, and uh, it's just something we've never done over here, but um, it's, it's been fascinating, particularly fishing blobs, because blobs imitate clusters of zooplankton, which trout love to eat. Oh, is that what that is? Okay, what yeah. about the boobies? The, bo- the, the booby is, uh, I believe, is, 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 it's a fly that elicits an aggressive response from a fish. They just don't like that thing in their territory. And they eat it to get it out of their territory, out of their turf. And some fish respond violently to a booby and will grab it. And other times, they'll just swim right on by and not even look at it. And you, you, you can experiment with different colors and sizes. And it just adds another dimension to fishing lakes. And uh, we like to, I like to fish boobies, uh, particularly late in the fall on a clear lake with marl shoals and the fish are in there feeding on shrimp and they get very tunnel visioned on shrimp but you can sight fish them with boobies and it's like it's it's as close as we're getting to bonefish That's and right, with yeah. no salt water because it's all sight fishing and it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun yeah and you can catch some awfully large fish um, sight fishing them in the fall. Are these lakes natural or are they man-made? By far the majority of these lakes are naturally developed through the last glaciation that scoured out these shallow impressions. And we have a lot of lakes in, in the uh, Okanagan, in, in, in the uh, Kootenays, Kamloops, Caribou, and even further north that are also irrigation impoundments. So they were man-made lakes or natural lakes that were artificially raised for irrigation purposes that are also wonderful fisheries because they're shallow. Right. It's all about how much 
Photosynthesis can penetrate to the bottom of the lake to produce green plant growth, which provides the habitat for the aquatic invertebrates that trout fish on. So the perfect lake for developing as a stillwater fishery is a lake that has deep water refuge, but also lots of shallow shoal area. So I think you've you've fished a big OK lake in the Highland Valley before. I think it's called so. Island Lake. Oh yeah, big yeah. time. In my mind, that is the perfect lake. Because if if you've ever seen that lake from a helicopter, it's almost rectangular in shape. The middle of the lake is this big square shoal and then dropping off all four corners of that shoal is water that extends up to 45 feet. So here we've got this huge grocery store in the middle of shallow water and then they can slide off it into deep water. It's it's a perfect fishery. So that's a that's a natural lake that was impounded and raised uh, artificially and they were, it was used... Um, actually for a water source for an old mine that was up in that area. Okay. But it has all the perfect habitat for a lake, lots of shoal area, and then this deep water refuge that comes off. What about the lakes that have wild fish? Do you guys leave those alone? Yeah. So by far, out of the 20,000 lakes in the province, by far the majority of lakes that do have trout in them are wild. So of those 20,000 lakes... The Freshwater Fish Society only stocks about um, 800. That's it. Oh. So by far the majority of lakes in the province are wild, and that's the way we want to keep them. Wow. Brian, my brain is reeling. That's incredible. Can people book you for a trip at some point? Yeah. uh, Well, I've taken this year off, April, to kind of go fishing and recharge my batteries, but um, I most likely will be back at it again next year. Well, I'll post the link to your and Phil's website and the app. I think that a lot of people could learn from the app. Yes. And um, other than that, we're going fishing tomorrow. We are. I'll have lots of questions for you on the water. Yeah. Do you have anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Oh, I, I, before we did this uh, this interview, I, I went on to your website, April, and I, I've, I previously had listened to some of the uh podcasts that you've done in the past and then I started looking last night in depth at at the people you've interviewed and that's amazing the people that you've interviewed and some of those people I know a number of those people on there but again I just want to say that I am truly honored to be on a podcast with you oh god Brian top of my list five years (laughs) top of my list you have no idea how much this means to me thank you and I look forward to getting on on the water with you tomorrow I can't wait. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored online.